Good morning, everybody. Let's start with a quick question. What are you willing to die for? I really want you to think through that. And especially as we we look through this passage and just looking at the different stories that we're going to see in it, I want you to think about the idea of what would you be willing to die for? I know many of us would say things like like our family, right? Like I would die for my wife and my kids and maybe some extended family in there, right? Like we're willing to die for our family. Maybe even some of us would say I would would be willing to die for my friends, right? Like some of my friends are close. I don't have siblings. So some of my friends were like brothers and sisters to me. So I'd be willing to die for some of them at some point in my life. But what else? Is there anything else? Like would you be willing to die for your stuff? Right? Like, would you be willing to die for your car or your house or, or whatever it is? I, I know I can exaggeratively say sometimes, like, I would die without my phone. Like, I'll say that from time to time. And I literally think I couldn't exist without it. Like, it reminds me to take medicine that helps me to live properly. But the reality of, like, would I actually die without my phone? Like, if somebody came up to me right now and held a gun to my head and said, give me your phone, I'd be like, here you go. What else do you want? You want the shoes? What else, you know, like, it's yours. Like, I don't need this stuff. I'm not willing to die for that. What about our beliefs? Are you willing to die for your beliefs? Now, obviously, we're sitting in a church, so instantly we think of, like, Christian beliefs. But even just anything, like our political beliefs, our spiritual beliefs, maybe our athletic, like the teams and the athletic stuff that we are so passionate about? Are we willing to die for any of that stuff or any of those beliefs and those feelings? Today we will be in Daniel 3 and we will see young men who are willing to give everything for their faith. They're willing to, to die. But I also thought about when I started reading this, I, I thought about the story of Jim Elliot. Now, some of you probably know Jim Elliott. You've probably heard stories about it. He was a, was a missionary back in 1954. And him and five, four of his other friends decided they felt called to go to Ecuador, to this indigenous tribe down in the Amazonian rainforest. And they were going to go down and try and take the gospel to this very unreached people group, very, very difficult to get to. They were the Aka Indians. And they felt called to do this, and so they flew down there and started trying to make contact with them. But a year into the attempt, things started to get a little fishy. Because the Aka Indians were a small nomadic tribe who were notoriously suspicious of outsiders. Anyone that didn't look like them, they were very suspicious, thinking they were going to try and take over them or kill them themselves. So in January 1956... Jim and his four friends were brutally killed by members of that tribe that they were trying to take Jesus to. Now, that's already an incredible story right there, right? Like people willing to go to some indigenous tribe. They knew some of the the struggles, the possibilities. They knew this wasn't like, yeah, these people are going to be completely chill with us and be okay with us. They knew there was a sense of danger when they went, but we hear story, we've heard stories about this. Even nowadays, we'll hear stories about Christians in Muslim countries willing to die for their faith. So that's not all that unrealistic. What was even more incredible to me about the story of Jim Elliot is his wife, Elizabeth. 
See, Elizabeth saw the need to take the gospel to this tribe. She saw, she understood the call that God had placed on her husband's life. And although they had just brutally murdered her husband and his friends, she felt called to continue that mission. So two years after the murder of Jim and his friends, Elizabeth, her toddler daughter, and a a sister of one of the other missionaries that had died went back to Ecuador, back to that same tribe, that same Aka Indian tribe, in order to present the gospel to them. Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary who inspired generations of evangelical Christians by returning to Ecuador to preach the gospel to an Indian tribe that had killed her husband. I can't even fathom that. I, I, I just can't. And some of you wives are probably sitting here thinking the same thing too. Like, I, me willing to give my life for something, I, 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 could, I could do that, I think. Like, I could put myself in that position. But my wife immediately, two years later, going back with my toddler to try and continue that mission, that is just unfathomable to me. But that's what Elizabeth did. And today, we're going to see some individuals, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were willing to do something similar because of their beliefs. So just a reminder, obviously, we're talking about the idea of courage. And courage, we have defined it as strength in the face of trouble. That's what Elizabeth was. That's what Jim was. That's what many missionaries and many Christians are. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are as well today. And I've been reading this book. It's called Thriving in Babylon. It's by an author named Larry Osborne. He's a pastor out in California. And his whole premise of the book is this idea of living in a Babylon. He makes the connection of Babylon being America, basically. And just how we can thrive as Christians in Babylon. And so he has this whole idea of like comparing Babylon to America and what does it look like for us nowadays. But he had this incredible quote. He says, Courage without humility leads to martyrdom. That's dying for our faith. But it's not, it's just like, it's just, it's not a a heartfelt kind of dying for our faith is what he's trying to say. Courage without humility leads to martyrdom. Humility without courage leads to spinelessness. But together, courage and humility can shake the very foundations of hell, advancing the kingdom of God into the most unlikely of places, even in Babylon. And that's what we're going to see today. It takes courage to be willing to die for our beliefs. And these young men today have courage and they have humility. And they are going to shake the very foundations of hell in Babylon. Today, we're going to be heading to court. We're heading to a Babylonian trial by fire. And so while we look through the passage today, I'm going to be comparing it to a a courtroom scene will be our main points going through it. And so we start off in chapter three. I'm just going to give a little preface of this first part, and then we'll jump into the actual action. So as chapter three starts off, we see trouble brewing right again for our young men. In the last chapter, we saw Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a giant statue. And part of that statue represented his kingdom. And it seems as if he really liked the idea of this statue. So he builds this giant monstrosity. It says in the first verse, it says that it's 60 cubits 
and its breadth is six cubits. So for those of you who don't measure things in cubits anymore, that's approximately 90 feet tall by nine feet wide, and it's covered in gold. If that isn't the most gaudiest thing I think I've ever probably heard of, but that's Nebuchadnezzar. That's the kind of thing he likes, right? And it's not just we're going to build this giant statue. We see also in this first section here that Nebuchadnezzar wants everyone in the kingdom to bow down and worship the statue when a litany of musical instruments are played. Some of the instruments used in here, I don't even know what, I don't know what a trigon is, but if one of you knows, that'd be great. You can teach me about it later. But this, it sounds like just a, a train wreck of music, just banging and making noise, just, just to let people know, like, this is the time, bow down and worship. The statue is Nebuchadnezzar attempting to elevate himself as a god. He is making the claim, I am a god. Last chapter, he heard that his kingdom would come to a ruin someday, and he is making the claim that he will never be defeated. This whole scene is Nebuchadnezzar's attempt at a worship service for himself. And it's not going to sit well with our young men. If they weren't willing to eat a little bit of pork two weeks ago when we looked at that, I highly doubt they're going to bow down to a 90-foot golden statue. But let's see. Let's jump right in. Starting at verse 8, we'll read. In the first section here, we see, I said it's a courtroom scene. So the first few verses we're going to read today, we have the accusation. So starting right away in verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, Live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So it's getting, it's getting hot. There's going to be a couple of puns that throughout this. I got to just make those, right? It's getting hot for our young men. Things are really starting to heat up. So, like I said, it, it, it's, it's, it, we're looking at this from a courtroom scene. And these first seven verses are the accusation. It starts off and it says, certain Chaldeans. Well, who are these people? Well, they're most likely some of the, the upper echelon of the ruling party. There's a lot of people that are helping lead Babylon. It's a huge kingdom. And so there are people over all the different districts and different areas and just within the courtrooms and within the area. It's a lot probably like our government, different people in different places and all over the place. 
And so certain Chaldeans, but they're Babylonians. That's what a Chaldean is. So they're actually the, the people that Nebuchadnezzar is. We talked about before how this has becomes like a more of a melting pot in Babylon as they, as they conquer other countries and they assimilate them to them. But the Chaldeans were actually the Babylonian people. So they probably weren't too happy about these young Hebrew boys that they were in the position that they were in. You see, the Babylonian Empire was completely built off obedience to the king. You moved up the ranks, the more obedient you were. But not our boys. They were unwilling to assimilate, and they're foreigners. But yet somehow they've managed to get to the rank that they have. So the other people in the king's court want these men gone. They don't want them around. They don't like them because they're not willing to assimilate, and they look different, and they, they stand up against Nebuchadnezzar. So they want rid of them, and bowing down, not bowing down to this statue is the perfect event. So that's where we have that first few verses right there. Is that's the accusation. We see the certain Chaldeans give the accusation, and then Nebuchadnezzar brings them back in, right? And we see his inquiry in verses 13 through 15. Now it's confusing to me at first, because if you look back at those first six verses... Nebuchadnezzar says all the same stuff we already just read. And he says that anyone that doesn't bow down will immediately be thrown into the fire. But yet he hears the accusation and he second guesses. We see him backpedaling a little bit. It's not immediate. He gives these boys a chance. He, it's like he's second guessing. And I, and I have to wonder, like, why? Why, is, why didn't he just grab them, throw them in the fire? He heard that there was an accusation. He heard they didn't bow down. He knows that they willingly don't bow down to his gods and, and, and they won't eat his food and stuff like that. So why deal with it? Just throw them in the fire. It's probably because he's pretty fond of these young men. It's probably because they've been so respectful and probably because he's seen God blessing them and through that blessing his kingdom. So he actually doesn't want to throw these young boys in the fire. It seems like a generous offer to these young men. He's like, okay, well, maybe you didn't hear the decree, right? Like maybe, maybe you were off somewhere else when the decree went out and maybe the notice didn't get to you, right? So I'm going to give you another chance, Let's try it again. Maybe you didn't hear the music playing. Maybe that's what the problem was. So let's try it again. I'm going to play all this crazy music, and I'm going to give you a chance to bow down in front of me. It's interesting to note that this wicked, all-powerful king is going back on his grand statement. This huge decree that he makes, all-powerful king, and now he second-guesses himself and gives him a second chance. It's not immediate. And he even says immediately again, well, it's not immediate, Nebuchadnezzar. And it's especially interesting to note when we will see the response of these young men. I thought about this. I don't know if you guys are like me, but it's like in our own lives, right? When we make these grand declarations of something, I often make decrees within my family. We are never eating at this restaurant again. We're never going to this store again. And it's usually some sort of ridiculous reason, right? Like they gave my son a girl toy instead of a boy toy and I'm furious with them now or, or whatever reason. But it's just like, we're never going to these places ever again, but when you're driving through Utah in the middle of the night and you haven't eaten for a couple hundred miles, those grand decrees start to wane a little bit. When it's like, I just really need some fries and a soda, right? I need, just need to keep going. So 
that's just, maybe we shouldn't make such grand decrees like Nebuchadnezzar does. But whatever, I'm probably still going to keep doing it. I've probably done it last week. But as we look into this next section, though, we can see the confession of our young men. They've been accused. They've brought and brought into the courtroom. Nebuchadnezzar has given them the inquiry. We're going to see the confession now in the next two verses. Verse 16 starts off. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Whoo! Those are just powerful words. These are probably some of the most faithful words in Scripture. Standing in front of this wicked ruler who's known for beheading people on a whim. Standing next to the fiery furnace. They can probably feel the heat off of it. Filled with a room of people that don't agree with them and want to see them die. They boldly say, no, we're not going to do it. No matter what, we will not bow down to you or this statue. And that comment, he will deliver us. They know. This reminds me already of like, or it reminds me back to Philippians. Now we just came out of Philippians. It's so incredible to me when I see different Bible books like playing into each other and systematically just linking up. You know, we read about Paul saying things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And that's literally what these young men are saying here too. No matter what, we will be delivered out of your hands. Either God will miraculously save us out of this burning, fiery furnace. We have no idea how. But God will do that. He might do that. Or we're going to die, but we won't have to be with you anymore, King. And we're going to be with God. So no, we're not bowing down to this. No matter what. These three courageous Jewish boys were not concerned about themselves. Nor were they afraid of the king. Their only concern was obeying God. And giving a faithful witness to everyone who was watching and listening. And we'll see in the next few verses. There is a room full of people watching this entire interaction. Their attitude was respectful. And their words were few and carefully chosen, but they don't back down. The three Hebrew men believed that God could deliver them. They knew that he could. They knew that God could do anything. They'd read the stories. They'd heard the stories of walking through the, 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 the sea and the parting of the seas. And they'd heard of all of the plagues. They knew the stories of the Old Testament. They knew how powerful God was. But they would trust him even if he didn't deliver them out of the fiery furnace. That is how faith is supposed to operate in our lives. It's not just about the statue, right? Like the statue is just an idol. Truly what these men are saying, they are making the claim that they will not worship Nebuchadnezzar. No, Nebuchadnezzar, you are not a god. You are just a man and we will not worship you. As you can assume, that's exactly how Nebuchadnezzar takes the statement they make, and he gets a little fired up. So follow along again as I start up at 19. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was 
filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more hot, seven times more than it usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three fell. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So they're thrown in. There's the verdict passed down. Death by fire. Instant death, right? And it says that it's, he gets so angry that he commands the people to heat it up seven times hotter. Now, I don't, under, I don't know what the, the type of temperature that they're measuring in, and I don't know what seven times hotter would be, but really, it's just God's way of telling us it is hotter than hot. It is the hottest they could possibly make it. And it says that it's so hot that even the men that are throwing Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego into the fire get burnt up just as they go to throw them in. Those men are burnt alive. The generosity that Nebuchadnezzar showed just a little bit ago, trying to give them a second chance, has turned into maniacal rage. How could they disobey me while standing face to face with me? Don't they know who I am? Don't they know all that I've done and conquered? How could they do this? He doesn't even care that his faithful employees are killed in the process. He's crazy. He's absolutely out of control. What's really being attacked is his pride. And that's the heart of this whole passage is that Nebuchadnezzar's pride builds this statue and these young men humble him through God. God is using these three men to humble Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And we're going to see this. Nebuchadnezzar is such a prideful person over and over again. But when his pride is attacked, we see him flying out of control. And how many of us are like that as well, too? When our pride is attacked, we fly out of control. We do stupid things. We make grand decrees. We don't like our pride being poked on. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't either. And that's why he's so angry and has them cast into the fire. Now, many of you know where this story goes. You know what comes next. But we see that God does deliver them. And we see these in his last few verses here. Starting at verse 24, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. God permits them to be cast into the fire. He lets them be cast into this burning, fiery furnace but he literally goes into the fire with them. It's not just, yep, you're going to get thrown in and I'll miraculously save you. God goes into the fire with them. And we see this. There's a fourth person. Who? Who is this fourth person in the fire? One, one verse says that it looks like an angel and the other one says it looks like the son of the gods. I will tell you, I full-heartedly believe that it is Jesus in the fire with them. It is the pre-incarnate Jesus. And that's, that's confusing for a lot of people because we think of Jesus coming onto the scene and at the opening of the New Testament. But I will tell you, Jesus is throughout the Old Testament. We see these things called Christophanies. They're angelic beings that have immense power and that people end up worshiping. And that this, these angelic beings allow the worship to come to them where other angels don't allow it and so i full-heartedly believe that this is jesus in the fire with them besides the power that is shown here and the uh, saying that it's the looks like the son of the gods that's the only proof i have to that but it is my belief jesus goes in the fire with them now, something that's also really cool about this is this is fulfillment of prophecy. And that's not a lot of people. I didn't know that until I was researching it this week. This passage, this whole chapter is actually fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah. So I have a passage behind me here, Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. It says, now this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I will call you by my, your name. You are mine. I will be with you when you pass through the waters and when you pass through the rivers. They will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire and the flame will not burn you. For I am the Lord your God. Isaiah was written as the Babylonians were coming into Israel and starting to take over the country. It was before, during, and the last few chapters of Isaiah were written as Daniel is starting up. Isaiah rolls right into the book of Daniel. But so Isaiah wrote these words in chapter 43 a few years before this happened in Daniel. It's fulfillment of prophecy. But it's not just fulfillment for these three young men. It has fulfillment for us today too. Jesus promises to walk in the fire with us. He promises that he will not leave you nor forsake you. He is with you in the valley and in the mountaintops. We just need to remember that he is here. Unfortunately, we live in a world that is drowning out the ability to even feel Jesus' presence with us. From smartphones and binge-watching television and overactive kids and overactive adults and just all of the things that try to steal our attention. We live in a world just trying to drown out Jesus' call to us. 
And he will not shout or scream over your phone to be heard. He doesn't have to. He is God. But he is here. And he wants you to be with him. He wants you to to commune with him, to read his word, to feel his presence. So I beg you, do that. Put the phone away for a little bit. Read God's word. Feel his presence in your life. He walks in the valleys with us. When we are feeling at our lowest, that is when we need to run to God's word, run to God in prayer, and, and try to feel his presence with us. Now, these three Hebrews are not just saved from death. They're promoted again. And I'm sure that really burns the accusers' behinds. Yeah, there it is. But this is the last we will hear of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They won't be in the rest of Daniel. And there's no real reason for that. There's even just researching it. It just says, like, this is the last we hear about them. We don't know if they live a long life or if something else crazy comes down the road and they end up getting killed. There's, there's no historical anything about them from this point on. But we know up until this point that whatever happened after this in their life, if they were able to stand in this scene, they were able to stand in so much more. And they were faithful to God till the end. Nebuchadnezzar now decrees that all of Babylon must show respect to Yahweh, to God. And this is really huge. Nebuchadnezzar is getting closer to this one true God. Last chapter, we see him making the statement that Daniel's God is the God of gods. Right? Like, he's the God of gods. Your God is the best, Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar still obviously thinks that there are other gods, but Danny's God, he's top notch. He's the best of all the gods. And then in this chapter, he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's blessing the God of them. And then. And then he makes another decree in verse 29, right? This, this wonderful decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin. Okay, well, Nebuchadnezzar's still a little psychotic, clearly. Like, he's not quite getting the full understanding uh, of the heart of God, the heart of Yahweh. Like, he's like, okay, yep. Their God is the best. So if anyone speaks about him, you're going to be murdered. Like, he just really loves murdering people. But that's just who he is as a person, I guess. And, and we're getting closer, right? Like in the beginning, he didn't even respect God. And so now we've at least made some steps towards God. But we're not quite there yet. Like just saying, yep, blessed be God. Yep, I know about God and hanging out with religious people. Don't actually make you a follower. He's not quite there yet. But one of my favorite chapters in the book of Daniel is coming up next week. And we're going to see the amazing conclusion to Nebuchadnezzar's life. And it is just so cool to see what these faithful witnesses in this courtroom were able to do in this psychotic, maniacal king's life. I want to end our time by way of application, really. And and I know we don't do that often, but I just, I want us to really apply these, these this chapter to our life because it's really easy to read stories about the burning fiery furnace and say, oh, it's such a cool story. And these are the heroes of the faith and not really let us let it affect our life. And that's what this should be doing. So again, I ask, what are you willing to die for? 
Are you willing to die for your belief in Jesus? You probably won't have to. Like, that's not something that most of us have to do at any point in our life. But are you willing to surrender everything for God? Are you willing to go wherever he calls you, speak to whomever he tells you to, give up any idols he commands you to? I want to point this out. It's something we've talked about before, but that this chapter, it really points us to us again. And that's this idea of living sacrificially. I know that you all are willing to sacrifice something. The fact that you are here today, you are sacrificing time, possibly your preferences. When we make you get up and shake people's hands, I know the social anxiety just grips half of your hearts and you have to shake people and touch people's hands. And I know like that's just hard, but you do it. And some of you are you're sacrificing even many of you, many, or for, for many of you finances, like many of you are sacrificing being here. But how much are you really willing to sacrifice to God? What have you sacrificed for Jesus? Have you sacrificed to the point that it hurts? Not just as a little awkward or not just a, not your preference, but actually sacrificing to the point that you had to hurt a little. Pastor Sam Alberry, he's a pastor out in England. He has this incredible sermon where he talks about this idea of sacrificing what we, what we desire and what we love. And one of his main points is that discipleship is hard. And it's not just hard for people who struggle with big issues, right? Like we make it that way in the church. Like, oh yeah, discipleship and following Jesus. That's probably really hard for certain people with like addictions and same-sex attraction. Like, wow, that's probably really difficult for those people. But true discipleship is hard for every one of us. Sam says, if you are ever tempted to believe that discipleship is unfair to a particular people group, it may be that you, have not, that you haven't truly counted the cost of discipleship in your own life. Have you counted the cost of discipleship? Are you willing to live sacrificially? Walking with Jesus is a self-sacrificial, radical act, no matter who you are and who you were, what you were, what you did before you encountered Jesus. Jesus states in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the good news. To repent means to turn around completely, to reorientate our lives, to be more focused on God. For all of us, discipleship is going to be costly. There are things that we're going to have to turn away from that feel fundamental to who you were before you became a follower of Jesus. Now, I don't want to make it seem like following Jesus is going to mean a lifetime of pain and suffering and giving up things. It, it could for some people, but it shouldn't just be something that we add on to our already seemingly good lives. Like, yeah, I've got a good job, I've got a good wife, my, uh, I have a pretty good life. I think I'm going to go to church now because that's what good people do. No, that is not the call of Christianity. That is not what discipleship is. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. He is truly calling us to die. Pick up your cross and carry it. Carry it to death. Prisoners had to carry their own cross. We saw Jesus do it, but he, every single one of them did it. He is calling you to die. What are you willing to die for? Courage is dying to ourself. 
It is unlikely that any of you will be thrown into a fiery furnace for your beliefs. Or probably not even face situations where your, where your faith could put your life in jeopardy. Like, that's just not something that most of us encounter. We have approximately 200 regular attendees on most Sundays, right? And about 10 to 20% of those people are willing to go to places that, that may be unsafe. Like, we've gone to Haiti, and we've gone to Turkey, and these different places, and we always get that response when we talk about that. Like, you want to go to Turkey? That's a Muslim country. That's scary. You, have you read how bad Haiti is? Oh my goodness, it's scary there. But even those 10 to 20 who are 10 to 20% that are willing to go usually are only willing to go after the trip leader lulls them into some sense of security. Like, no, Turkey's not that bad. We're on the opposite side. ISIS is on this side. We're over here. You're fine. You'll be safe. It's okay. It's a safe trip. Haiti's fine. We stay in this house. It's beautiful. Big concrete walls with barbed wire. You'll be safe. Nothing to worry about. And then people are like, okay, I'll go now. When we come to faith in Jesus, we died. The Bible is clear about that. Your old self is dead. You are a new creation in Christ. That means that the desires of your old self need to be put to death as well. We need to surrender everything to him. Surrendering and dying to our faith is not just about our physical life. Are you willing to die to your preferences, your selfishness, your dreams, your finances, your feelings that you deserve something, your your unwillingness to seek forgiveness, whatever it is that you are holding on to and saying, no, I, I won't die to that. I won't sacrifice that. I won't let go of this thing in my life. No, Jesus, you can't have that. What is it that you're holding on to so tightly? You will not be thrown into a fiery furnace. I can almost guarantee that. But are you willing to face the fire when you go to work and someone criticizes you for your faith? The fire when your husband won't lead or even attend church with you. The fire when you look at your bank account and say, should I really give this month? I just don't know. When is the last time your sacrifices for your faith made someone question your sanity? When the gospel has truly gripped your soul, it produces such levels of sacrifice that people simply have to ask why you live the way you live. Like, what in the world is different about you? I need to know. And that usually helps people to know Jesus more than standing on a street corner and preaching. That's not what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. They weren't standing on a street corner, waving some sign. Y'all are going to burn. You're going to hell. No, they just... This is, this is against our beliefs and we're not going to do it. So one last time I ask you, what are you willing to let die in order to follow Jesus more today? What will it take for you to have faith like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What will it take for you to say, even if I'm not delivered from this situation, even if these people still do these things, even if whatever it is, I will not bow and I will faithfully serve you today, God. I'm willing to surrender all of it, God. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for these men, these heroes of our faith. These men were so bold and willing to stand strong in the face of persecution and, and, and the face of death. 
They knew what the outcome would be, but they were willing to stand strong for their faith because they knew that you were good, God. God, I pray for all of us. Help us to really look at our lives, to take that magnifying glass to our own life, to turn to you, God, and pray and to say, God, what do you want me to sacrifice? What am I holding on to? What won't I let you have? What, what area of my life will I not let you in, God? I pray that we can be people that just live completely surrendered to you. I know it's hard. I know it's hard to let go of those things that we feel are so fundamental to who we are. But God, you are so good. And you will meet us there and you will bless us for that and you will walk with us. God, I thank you that you are a God that walks in the fire with us. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this passage, Lord. In your name we pray. Jesus, amen.